0: This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR
1: podcast, White Lies.
0: Hi, my name is Jenny Jackson and I'm the author of
1: Pineapple Street. If you're a reader, Jenny Jackson might not be a name you are familiar with, but you've likely come across her work. You see, Jackson is the vice president and executive editor at Knopf, and she's edited the works of Gabrielle Zevin and Emily St. John Mandel and Cormac McCarthy and numerous others. And now Jenny Jackson is tackling a new gig, authoring fiction of her own. Pineapple Street is her first novel, and it follows the uber-wealthy Stockton family as they navigate the consequences of generational wealth, privilege, and social class in high society Brooklyn. The result is a fun narrative full of family drama, secrets, and a glimpse of how the 1% live. I spoke with Jenny Jackson about her book, publishing, and more. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Can you give our listeners a brief description of Pineapple Street? Sure. Pineapple Street is the story of three women
0: from the same Brooklyn Heights family. And the novel follows them as they each deal with their troublesome relationships with money.
1: You know, one of your epigraphs is a quote from Truman Capote, and it reads, I live in Brooklyn by choice. I actually didn't even realize Pineapple Street was a street in Brooklyn, that it's one of the three fruit streets. So where did the idea for Pineapple Street come from? And do you have a relationship with Brooklyn?
0: Yeah, so I was actually living on Pineapple Street when I wrote the novel. I lived in Brooklyn for about a decade. And one of the things that always sort of struck me as funny is I moved to New York 20 years ago and I moved to Manhattan and I had that sort of unearned smugness of a new New Yorker in Manhattan thinking, wow, I'm at the center of the world. And I was sort of raised on like Sex in the City and Paul Auster and like a million different influences that all led me to believe that Manhattan was sort of the center of the earth. And when friends would have a party out in Brooklyn, I would sort of roll my eyes about having to take the subway all the way out to Brooklyn. And then when I got married and had children, like everyone else, I moved to Brooklyn. But funnily enough, I think our whole cultural vision of Brooklyn has changed since then. You know, it's become incredibly cool and incredibly desirable and also the lifestyle in Brooklyn is pretty wonderful. So I think I have a really funny relationship with Brooklyn in that I'm so proud to sort of lay claim to it. But then I have to be honest that I like discovered it late and (laughs) had all the wrong ideas about it to start.
1: The novel focuses on one family, the Stockton's. They have accumulated their wealth primarily through real estate, and it would be easy to rest with the knowledge that, you know, you're rich, but each of the three Stockton kids have earned college degrees, have or had difficult jobs, and have had to deal with, you know, weighty decisions of insulting a loved one by suggesting a prenup. So talk to me about this family. They have a gazillion dollars, yeah, but how are they different or similar to other families?
0: Well, I think that a lot of what fascinates me here is dissecting our Cultural relationship with money by generation. I think that each generation has their very own, very different attitudes towards wealth. And I think, you know, in writing about the older members of the Stockton family, Tilda and Chip, they're the boomers. And their relationship with money is a lot more straightforward and secure. They both come from affluent families, they mainly hang out with other affluent people. And they are not conflicted at all about having made money, even though, of course, making money is easier when you already have a big pot of it to begin with. And then we get into the sort of middle generation here in this novel. And those are the older siblings, Darlie and Cord, and then Cord's wife, Sasha. And these characters are my age. They are in their 40s, and they're sort of on the edge of millennial and Gen X, what I like to call geriatric millennials. And they have a more complicated relationship with money in that they are just now sort of starting to question whether or not they've been given unfair advantages. You know, that they've seen sort of our cultural shift and they have this sort of dawning awareness that maybe it's not actually all that earned when you grow up with, you know, this in the bank. You know, it's easier to make money when you have money. And then the third generation, the one that I think grows the most and is the most interesting in terms of their relationship with money here is Georgiana, who's the youngest character. Georgiana is on the other end of the millennial spectrum. She is on the edge of Gen Z. And the kids this generation, the young people this generation, grew up watching Occupy Wall Street, and maybe they voted for Bernie uh, or maybe for AOC. And they have a really challenging relationship with money. They think that capitalism is potentially suspect and they think that inherited wealth is possibly immoral. And Georgiana has sort of been oblivious to much of this and then comes face to face with her own privilege over the course of this novel. So it's been interesting for me to explore their different relationships with it. And I think it's so easy to vilify The rich in fiction, I mean, in the same way that in real life, I think we revere the rich in ways that's inappropriate. In fiction, we do often pick on the rich. My goal here was to actually explore it all from a really human perspective, because I think that's a lot more interesting.
1: Another one of your epigraphs is a quote from Zoe Beery from The New York Times. It reads... Millennials will be the recipients of the largest generational shift of assets in American history, the great wealth transfer, as finance types call it. Tens of trillions of dollars are expected to pass between generations in just the next decade. Now, I wanted to talk about this because in your book, Sasha, who married Cord, she feels like an outsider because of her lack of generational wealth. Can you talk to me about this this generational wealth that's happening and its continual impact?
0: Yeah, I think that for Sasha, growing up in New England, I personally grew up in New England, generational wealth, of course, exists, but it was a little more under the radar in New York, I think that the level of generational wealth is a lot more extreme, and Sasha is really coming face-to-face face with it in this novel because she's being welcomed into a family that has, on some level, always been trained to marry other people from their social class. And it's not something that's said out loud, but you know, the logic behind it is, if you marry somebody else who has a lot of generational wealth, then you combine your assets and you continue to grow that generational wealth. On a social level, the attitude is if you marry somebody from your class, there are not those uncomfortable things. You don't have to be so awkward about the prenup. You don't have to be so awkward about you know, paying for so-and-so's education. You don't have to be so awkward worrying about Whether they're going to be brothers and sisters and people coming out of the woodwork that are going to want loans all the time. There are just many reasons for this family to feel like they want to isolate themselves from those in other classes. Sasha was sort of oblivious to this when she married Cord, but she's not oblivious to it anymore. And being told subtly every single day that you're different and that it would have been easier if your spouse had married somebody from his own class starts to feel pretty terrible and pretty alienating.
1: You know, as you mentioned, um, Georgiana is also, you know, dealing with the implications of this generational wealth. And she she struggles with her position of privilege and tries to almost make up for it by working in the nonprofit sector. But she's still horrible to Sasha, her sister-in-law, referring to her behind her back as the gold digger. And before a certain point in the book, she hadn't stepped back to consider how her actions are harmful to others. She has other struggles that she's dealing with with her own moral choices. Talk to me about Georgiana's complexity and how you create that complexity in a character. Well,
0: I have to admit that Georgiana was maybe the most fun for me to write. And I think she is the one who is often going to be the most enraging for readers a little bit of a love to hate sometimes because she's kind of a delightful brat. You know, she's wildly self centered and also pretty oblivious to her own privilege. And one of the magical things about writing in close third person is that you get to have so much fun playing in that little zone between what a character knows and understands about themselves and what you as the narrator know and understand about them. And with Georgiana, that little area is just infused with her kind of snobby little brattiness. Because Georgiana thinks she's a great person because she's been waltzing through her days working at a not-for-profit, but she's not even acknowledging that she didn't pay for her own apartment. She's never questioned where her money came from. She's never thought twice about all of the nice things that are given to her that maybe she has borrowed from her mom and never returned, or maybe she has squirreled away and lost somewhere, but she's really just lived this unchecked life. And then at the center of the novel, she does something that makes her question whether or not she's actually good. And around this time, she runs into a classmate who is doing something actually good. And she starts to see that money is not only a poison, money is also an opportunity. And there are lots of ways that we can make the world better, but people who have a lot of money have a great chance to do something important. And so Georgiana realizes in her very naive way, that she has the chance to actually be good by using her money differently.
1: The classmate that you're referring to, Curtis, he's even more rich than Georgiana, and he's giving it away. And and I understand that's a thing. People, you know, rich kids are giving away their money.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was so inspired by this piece to read about rich kids who are rejecting their inheritance or who are converting it into nonprofits, into charitable funds, The interesting thing is that Georgiana does end up feeling very inspired by Curtis. In this article in the New York Times, these kids are even a little more sophisticated than Georgiana and Curtis are in that they know that they shouldn't exist in the first place. These kids in the article, these rich kids who want to tear down capitalism, are saying generational wealth is corrupt. There's no reason that I should exist. There's no reason for me to be a 22-year-old billionaire. And the problem is actually it lies at the governmental level. Whereas I think for the characters in the book, I mean, Curtis might recognize that. I think Georgiana is just, she really has a lot to learn over the course of this novel. But for her, giving away money is really the best thing she can think of. And honestly, probably her only option from where she sits.
1: You know, I loved the main character's but I loved the secondary characters just as much. And I think I'm thinking of Malcolm. Even though we really don't get to hear him speak much, we get to know more about him. So talk to me about your characters, how you decide who gets a voice, how you decide who gets to have an impact on the book and, and such.
0: Well, Malcolm was so much fun for me to write. and He's one of my favorite characters. So Malcolm is... Second generation Korean American. And this makes him a really interesting member of the Stockton family. He really has been welcomed with open arms by his in laws. But, you know, his wife Darlie does have to wonder at some point if that is because Malcolm went to a fancy school and makes a lot of money working in aviation investment banking, and that, you know, in her family, class supersedes race. I liked writing about Malcolm and his relationship with Darley because they are so passionate. They're passionate about their interests. They met at business school. They're both obsessed with flying, with aviation, with airlines, with banking, with math. They really dork out together. And for me, it was fun to create. This relationship that was really based in a mutual intellectual passion. And then, you know, we learn as the story goes on that Malcolm, when he was young, he had a blog where he blogged about, you know, different models of airplanes from, you know, different manufacturers. And Darley, who was so passionate about that, had been a, a follower of his blog and met him in school. And she meanwhile was day trading JetBlue stocks based on their seeding apparatus to make money. And so I had a blast writing about them and really going down the research rabbit hole to kind of make these characters whole, individual people that are more than just their families.
1: So this might be your first novel, but you are not new to publishing. You are vice president and executive editor at Knopf. And I'm sure our listeners are familiar with your work as an editor, even if they don't realize it. I I was reading yesterday's New York Times feature about you and was pleasantly surprised about how many authors I visited with on Marginalia who you have edited. Gabrielle Zevin, Emily St. John Mandel, Catherine Heiney, J. Courtney Sullivan. And now I have another reason to be excited about diving into my Cormac McCarthy box set. So did working as an editor help you as you wrote your novel? Did you have your editor's voice talking in your ear or was it just your writer's voice who took over? I think it definitely,
0: definitely helped me. You know, I wasn't planning on writing a novel. This was a kind of surprise joy that I discovered from working from home. But I do think that unintentionally I've sort of studied at the feet of these masters for 20 years and I've learned so very much from them. I think you know, Jay Courtney Sullivan, who you've interviewed before, she wrote Maine, and she wrote The Engagements, and she wrote Commencement. All those books are rotating multiple point of view, close third person. So I've absolutely learned how to structure a book from Courtney. Katherine Heine, who wrote Early Morning Riser, who you've spoken to, is one of the absolute funniest writers that I know. And I think I learned a lot about building a joke from Catherine Heine. Catherine has this wonderful way of making her humor so character-based. She lets you really, really get to know who someone is and then they say the exact thing you know they're going to say and it just hits as so funny because she's made them so completely knowable to you. And, and also, I just think that she's wonderful at the sort of absurd comedy of domestic life which is what I love and what I know that I was trying really hard to put into Pineapple Street. So I think that in those ways, it helped me so much to work with these amazing writers. I think when it came to editing the book, I was really surprised by how hard it was. I can't believe for 20 years, I was so dumb about it. But I really thought that when my authors were reluctant to do edits, it came from a kind of like oh, it's not fun to go back in or, oh, it's hard to go back in. The thing I didn't understand that I do understand now is that the creative place that you write from is not always accessible. Sometimes you're really in that creative place and this sounds pretentious, but in my head, I kept thinking of it like you're either in the river or you're not in the river. And when I was revising, I found it pretty hard to get back in the river and now I'm done being pretentious maybe, but, um, now I understand sometimes when they have reluctance to write new scenes, it's not that they don't want to, it's that they can't quite snag that voice that they had when they were writing. So that's been
1: fascinating for me. You know, to that end, did knowing how the sausage was made, so to speak, help you with the publishing process? I mean, I know the company is Penguin Random House, but Knopf is a Random House imprint and Pamela Dorman Books and Viking are Penguin imprints. You were surprised by the editing process. Did anything about publishing your book surprise you?
0: I think that I, I mean, it definitely helped me to know what the lay of the land was. And it really helped me pick an editor who I knew I was going to not just get along with, but learn from. Pam Dorman is amazing and she's been doing this for 20 years longer than I have. So since I've been an editor for 20 years, I sort of knew that I would enjoy working with somebody who had been at it longer than me, or if not necessarily longer, who had some skill sets that I knew I just didn't have. And so that was really lucky, you know, to be able to look around at the field and say, oh, yeah, her, I want to work with her, you know, so that was really wonderful. I don't think anything can prepare you for how vulnerable you feel on the page. And when somebody, you know, writes in the margin that your joke doesn't work, or a scene doesn't work, or they don't believe a character, like, I don't know how thick your skin has to be for that to feel okay, but I would sort of, you know, stomp around my apartment and feel all (laughs) hurt about it. And then, you know, when they write in the margins like hilarious or I love this, you know, you like buoy up like a balloon. It's really surprising and borderline embarrassing that you feel as thin skinned and vulnerable as you do in this process.
1: I understand that there's another novel in your future. There was a reference to it in the Times piece, I think, something to do with John Updike.
0: Well, so I grew up in Ipswich, Massachusetts, which is this really beautiful seaside town north of Boston, and growing up, my friend was always sitting in church next to the writer John Updike, and when I go for runs, I always ended up by the house of his ex-wife, and then right just two blocks away from where I grew up is the house where he lived when he wrote Couples and the Rabbit novels, and so he has a big, long shadow in Ipswich, and I don't think that my novel will read remotely like Updikes, because that would be a wildly grand hope on my part. But I do think I'm interested in some of the things he was interested in when he was writing couples. So I've reread it, and I'm tinkering away on a project that I hope I can pull off.
1: So do you have any projects or editing projects you're excited about any books that are coming out that you want to talk about? I
0: do. I do. I have to mention the Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donoghue that I just know is going to be a very big deal. It's the first time her adult fiction has been published in the US. She's an Irish writer. And this novel is set in Cork in the early aughts. And it begins as this sort of fun, friendship story about this young woman and her gay roommate and they're broke and they work in a bookstore and they're trying to find themselves. And over the course of 300 pages, it turns into this incredibly sophisticated story about finding employment in a, in an economic recession and about bodily autonomy at a time when it's illegal. And about love and about what we actually think we deserve in this life and I'm so passionate about the Rachel incident.
1: Okay, so we've talked about a lot. Is there anything about Pineapple Street that you want to talk about that I haven't asked?
0: Well, I guess I just want to say that one of the things, you know, I published Kevin Kwan and The Crazy Rich Asians books and Kevin told me that when he was writing, he kept a post-it note over his desk that said the word joy on it and it was a reminder to him to constantly be putting joy into the story to give the readers a sense of joy. And so I did the same thing with Pineapple Street. You know, I wrote it at five in the morning. You know, I wrote it at 730 at night. I wrote it in the off hours of my day because I was just so intent on finding fun in a tricky time. And so I really hope that readers find fun in this novel too.
1: Well, the novel is Pineapple Street. Jenny Jackson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Beth. That was Jenny Jackson, author of the book, Pineapple Street, which was published by Pamela Dorman Books. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.